0: Thank you so much for joining The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I am your host, Sharon Fekety. I'm also the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I'm so glad that you're here today. This is a space that you're going to hear a lot of stories about recovery, addiction, men and women that have suffered from anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, trauma. We're going to have professionals on here as well. So I hope that It's not just this show that you listen to, but you go back and listen to the many other shows and the many other stories, and please subscribe and pass it on to somebody that you know that might be struggling and feel like they're alone. None of us are alone on this broken road to mental health, and I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the broken road to mental health in life and in business. And today I have a new friend. I'm already going to call him a friend because he knows most of my deepest and darkest secrets because I was on his podcast show. His name is Brett Morris and he is from the Recovery Survey podcast. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. And oh, you made me smile when you said new friend. Thank you so much.
0: You are my new friend. I'm like listening to you all the time too. So once, you know, I subscribe. So as soon as you have a new episode, I'm listening.
1: Awesome. Well, yeah. And, and it's interesting how we feel this connection, I think, with people we listen to regularly on podcasts and stuff. I'm the same way where there's, I, am I meet people that I have on my podcast or do other shows and they do recovery podcasts and stuff. And i start listening to their shows and I feel like it just kind of builds the friendship even more because there's just kind of that connection. So it's, it's a cool thing.
0: It's very nice. It's very, very nice. Well, I have been on a few shows before, but I think I enjoyed ours um, best because we really just—I uh, think there's something when you have the identification that we share in our our twelve step program. Our, our our rooms, there's like um, it's like I'm sitting here in a meeting with you now. <laughs> Just gonna have a talk about some of the deepest and darkest yet most comfortable things to talk about for some strange reason.
1: <laughs> right, right. Right.
0: So before we jump in, I just want everybody to um, you know, when you're done listening to this show, to head over to the recovery survey podcast, Um, Brett has really interviewed some great guests that I've already asked him if I could bite off of those and 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 interview a few because I really, really enjoy them. And before you um get in there and tell us your story. One of the things that I really liked that you were sharing with your last guest was the same as me. Like once I started doing, once I wrote my book and I started doing the podcast show and I started talking to people about other ways that people get healthy, get sober, get on the the broken road to mental health, um, you opens your mind to all these new ways of recovery. And it's really been a, a gift that a gift I wasn't expecting to have, you know, I already had this great gift from recovery, but this has been really nice to have these conversations. So I'm excited for all of you to, um, to hear Brett's story. Um, Brett is, uh, you know, I won't even read the bio because, And I told him, I didn't even listen to his story. I could have just went and listened on his podcast, but I wanted to hear it live. So Brett, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, experience, strength, and hope.
1: Awesome. And with that great introduction, I hope, hopefully I won't disappoint you or anybody that's listening to the show. (laughs) I just feel like you hyped me up so much. And, you know, I, I just feel like ai am I'm just a regular, normal person, but, you know, hopefully somebody hears something in my message that they can relate to or or they hear something that that you know just lets them know that they're not alone because i think that's the biggest thing at the end of the day is before i found recovery i just felt like i was so alone and so alienated so kind of getting into my story a little bit so even before drugs and alcohol were in the mix like before i had taken my first drink or done my first drug i can all i can remember always feeling just this sense of alienation, just this feeling that I didn't belong, that I wasn't like other people just kind of uncomfortable in my own skin and not really feeling like I fit in. And, you know, for a little bit of background and kind of the family dynamic. So I grew up with a father who's in law enforcement and then, uh, no boy. (laughs) Yeah. And then, uh, in the, mid 90s he moved to the narcotics division so he worked undercover pretending to be a drug dealer or a or not a drug dealer drug user buying from dealers and setting them up and arresting them so that was what he did for his career my mom was a school teacher when we had when they had kids she retired and became a stay-at-home mom and raised me and my sister and my parents made the decision that they wanted to homeschool us because they were wanting to try to protect us from drugs and all the evil in the world and all that and you know i I come from a a christian background my parents are pretty heavily involved in church so my life um was basically doing schoolwork at home and attending church activities and just kind of living in this little sheltered bubble um Mm. but i still didn't feel like i fit in and and you know when i hit adolescence i I I don't know. It it was like a switch clicked and I wanted to try drugs. I just had this desire because I'd heard for so long. My dad had always talked about how evil drugs were. And like, you know, just the typical things that you would expect from a police officer to tell you about drugs, like don't do them, (laughs) never going into any kind of specifics about what they were. And I just, I just had this curiosity and um, you know, I, I got a part-time job and a couple of the guys that I worked with there, uh, smoked weed after work. And, um, eventually I got up the courage to ask them if I could join them after, mm-hmm. after we got off. And, um, I, uh, I really liked the way that it made me feel. It made me f- for once in my life feel comfortable in my own skin. It made me feel like I could relax. It made me feel a part of i felt this connection with these guys and i just felt like all that anxiety and everything just kind of melted away as i got high and i remember thinking like i want to continue this feeling and and Mm then thinking like why is my dad so against this like i this is probably the best i've ever felt in my life so why Mm -hmm. why is he going out of his way to like arrest people that are selling weed and like you know all these kind of things and so it was like this inner conflict. And, and so I continued to do that. And, uh, you know, I had, I had drank a few times before that, but never, never gotten drunk. I had never had access to enough to actually really feel it. So like my, my parents will talk about like the first time I drank, cause it was several years before that I was a kid and it was Thanksgiving and the adults had moved from the from the dining room to the living room and left some wine glasses out and I finished off the little bits in everybody's glasses and mm. but I didn't get drunk then, so I don't know if that really counts or not. It doesn't really matter, but I can see a pattern in my life looking back of you know, me doing things to excess even before alcohol, you know, whatever it was, I would hyper focus on things that I enjoyed.
0: Mm. Sip. Um, I love it. Continue, Brett. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm really going to listen. I'm going yeah, to, yeah, soaking definitely. all this stuff up. I identify. I will, I will uh, jump in there and say I identify. And I think that that story of um, progression, which I'm assuming is going to come next, <laughs> typically does start out kind of innocent. You know, it sounded pretty innocent. You know, smoking a little weed, drinking some of the the, the ends of somebody else's drink sounds right. like you live, you live my life. <laughs> And yeah. then things
1: got worse. Yeah, much worse, much worse. So yeah, it, it stayed pretty innocent pretty much until I graduated high school. I was still living at my parents' house. My dad was, you know, pretty hyper aware of what was going on as far as us. And I was kind of nervous to be high around him because I knew that he would know I was high and
0: I, I would so hope.
1: I, I, Yeah. So I just kind of kept it on the down low, didn't really do anything else. You know, I'd smoke weed and You know, I went to a few house parties and and got drunk a few times, but nothing, nothing really all that crazy. And, you know, I can look back at it and kind of almost justify it of like, you know, that's just what kids did or whatever. Um, But then I graduated high school and went to college uh, briefly. And that is when, that's when I really started experimenting. I finally had that freedom. I was living with some roommates. I was away from my parents and, The apartment we had was in a a lower income neighborhood because we were all a bunch of broke college kids and we Mm -hmm. had a couple neighbors that were drug dealers and you know it was just easily available and so i just kind of went wild and wanted to see what all was out there i wanted to try different drugs um Mm. and so the second semester into my college career i got kicked out i think um if i remember correctly i think either my second or third week in college i got put on academic probation um, because i got busted showing up to class drunk Mm. and by the second by towards the end of the second semester i was expelled so college career was not off to a great start and that's kind of when my parents realized that there might be some things going on with me so they kind of uh set up some boundaries and stuff. Um, but I, I didn't see it as a problem yet. So I continued down this path and, you know, now I'm not in school. So now I have even more time to get high and do whatever I want. And, uh, pretty quickly into that, after I got kicked out of school, I got introduced to meth and it was through a coworker. Once again, I feel like I I find all these things through coworkers, but uh-huh. Tried it once and I remember well kind of the way it happened. So I worked at I worked at a pizza place. I was a pizza delivery driver and there was a tattoo shop a couple doors down from us and one of the guys at the tattoo shop had come over because we sold pizza by the slice. He came over to get some pizza on his break and the meth fell out of his pocket onto the floor.
0: Wow. And
1: I was being the good little employee I was, I came out and I was sweeping the lobby and I found that bag. And I knew what it was, but I had never done it before. And I showed it to my coworker who was a drug dealer and pol- and pizza delivery driver. And he was like, you cannot <laughs> do that. He's like, you, you cannot do that. Yeah. He, he actually was a pretty successful drug dealer. Like that's a great cover because you're all over town, but that's kind of beside the point. Um, but he was like, you cannot do that. And I was, and I was like, I found it. It's mine now. And mm. you know, the guy came back and, he was asked like, Hey, did anybody find anything? And we're like, we don't know what you're talking about. Cause he wasn't going to come right out and say what he lost. Um, and so eventually I talked to my coworker into letting me try it, even though I'd found it. I don't know why I felt like I had to justify to him that I was going to do it, but you know, he was like 10 or 15 years older than me. And he was kind of a, I don't even want to say father figure cause that wouldn't be an accurate description. But, uh, so I, I, I took it for the first time and, I can remember just having this thought of, like, this is what I've been looking for. Like, my quest to find the perfect drug is over. Like, this Mm -hmm. is it. I've never felt this good in my life. I've never felt this confident. I've never felt this motivated. I've never felt this awake. I've never felt, you know, just like, this was the missing piece. And I had no idea what getting addicted to meth was going to do to my life. I could only see... I could only see the good things right there in that moment of all this makes me feel so good. Um, So fast forward a little bit, probably about six months or so into regular meth use, I end up moving in with my meth dealer into his house. Convenient. Very convenient. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And eventually we kind of have a little bit of a falling out. I'm still living there, renting a room from him but he has decided that he's no longer going to sell to me because he says I am quote unquote using too much. Oh. like, what does that mean? You're a <laughs> drug dealer. I'm probably your number one customer. And I live, you know, one room over from you. How am I using too much? Like I'm, I, 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 that, that never made sense to me, but I don't know if he was trying to look out for me or what, but, uh, he stopped selling to me. So then I just started buying from somebody else. And, uh, but along the way um there were there were a lot of signs that I that I had problems my life was falling apart you know I didn't I, my life was out of control I didn't really know where I was going I was still working this pizza delivery job and I wasn't taking care of my mental health to get back to like the 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 road to mental health um and I just got to this point where I was suicidal I didn't really know what else to do. Like, I just got to this point where I was desperate and I wanted out of this life that I had made for myself. I knew in the back of my head that I wasn't living the life that I was supposed to live, that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't living the way that I was raised and, you know, living up to those values and things that my parents taught me to believe in. And, you know, I just didn't feel like a morally good person. And I started to hate myself and just didn't really know. Where to go or what to do, Um, and so I called my sister and I broke down on the phone and told her everything that was going on. And then I was smoking meth and that I couldn't stop and I didn't know where to go and I didn't know what to do, but I didn't want to do it anymore. And she knew I had been doing drugs, but she didn't really know the specifics because I feel like a lot of us, when we start doing things that we know people don't approve of, we start to distance ourselves Mm -hmm. and we we surround ourselves with people that do the same things that we do or that encourage us to do those things. So right. everybody, everybody that wanted me not to do those things, push them at away. A distance, yeah. Distance, distance from them. Yeah. So, so I broke down and told her what was happening and, uh, she had just gone through a divorce with her first husband. And so she said, Hey, I have extra room at my place. If you want to come stay with me, you're more than welcome to. And so I took her up on that offer cause I had I told her that I was living with my dealer and I didn't know how I was gonna stop using living with this dealer. Um, so I move in with her and I have this whole grand plan. I don't know anything about recovery. I've never been to a 12 step meeting. Don't really know the first thing about recovery. The only thing that I had ever really seen of AA was what you see on movies or TV, you know, people in a church basement, dimly lit, somebody standing up at a podium. Everybody right. clapping, like you know, just kind of the cliche things that we see on television. So I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, pretty good much.
0: SNL joke.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't I didn't go to any recovery meetings and I decided I was gonna do this thing on my own and and I told my sister, all right, I'm gonna cut out all the hard drugs, but I'm I'm still gonna drink, I'm still gonna smoke weed, like, but I'm gonna cut out all the hard stuff. And so mm. that was my plan. And I thought this is this is foolproof. Because I was thinking, oh. you know, my life before I found the hard drugs was, you know, going pretty well. Mm. I thought I could, I thought I could handle it. I was, you know, reminiscing on those days of high school, and you know, life just seemed to be easy. So I thought, okay, it's the hard drugs. That's my problem. It's the hard drugs. It, right. it can't be the alcohol. Can't be the weed. Like that stuff. That that can't be the problem. So I quit the meth cold turkey, and I start drinking. And I very quickly realized that in order to fill this void inside of me that I now am more aware of, I have to drink more and more and more and more. And before I know it, I am drinking to excess pretty much anytime I'm awake. If I am conscious, I am drinking or in the process of acquiring alcohol because I cannot stand to be with myself. I can't, i can't navigate my feelings and i'm still in this place of depression and suicidal and just i can't i don't even know how to describe it just this terrible miserable existence where i feel like i can't do anything and the only thing i know how to do is grab a bottle and escape that reality Mm -hmm. so i continue doing that still a pizza delivery driver mind you um and so i'm about 6 weeks into this new decision where i'm no longer doing hard drugs and i'm just drinking and smoking it's super bowl sunday and i'm drinking i have a six pack of beer in my center console just to keep my buzz going while i'm on the road and the area that i was working in at the time was a pretty it was a it was a college a lot of the places i delivered to were like college kids and there was a university there so a lot of partying going on at super bowl sunday every delivery i make in they're handing me a beer they're handing me a shot wow i'm just i'm drinking constantly this night especially though and my local bar and i was 20 at the time my my local bar down the street was closing and their last night was super bowl sunday so they're giving out free stuff. I go over there before I go into work, stop by the bar, see all the regulars. They pull a bottle of whiskey off the shelf, hand it. You know, they're just handing bottles out to all the regulars because the bar is closing at the end at the end of the night. Um, so I'm already pretty intoxicated. And uh, I make it through about half of the shift or so. I don't know. I know that the football game hadn't ended yet, so I don't know exactly what time that makes it. But I'm driving back to the shop to pick up some more pizzas and i pass out while i'm driving
0: oh boy and when
1: i pass out i'm i have both my hands on the wheel i'm in i'm in so it's a residential neighborhood and then there's a strip with a bunch of restaurants and stuff so i'm cutting through this residential neighborhood going somewhere between i don't know 30 40 miles an hour i i pass out and i slump over to my right towards the towards the passenger side of the car when i Pass out, and so I pull the wheel to my right, mm. and as I'm going down this street, there's four parked cars, and I just just bounce down the side of all four, oh, road. boom, no, boom, Brett. boom, just scraping the side of these cars. And, have, and as I clear that last car, since I'm still slumped over, I then go through somebody's front yard, boom, through their fence, and I hit their house.
0: Hey. And I don't remember <laughs> any of this. Yeah, I've well, seen, I would hope not.
1: I've seen pictures of it. I've, I've revisited the scene of the crime after I got out of jail, but I I don't remember the exact events of me passing out behind the wheel.
0: Mm. Full on blackout,
1: full on blackout. What I remember is once my car came to a stop in this person's house, the people that were in that house came outside and pulled me out of my truck. And Mm. that's the first thing I remember. And I wasn't really sure what was happening at the time Mm. because I was very drunk Um, but I ended up going to county jail and my dad being the law enforcement officer and kind of the old school parent decided that he was going to leave me in county jail for as long as they would keep me.
0: Uh, (laughs) That's familiar. Mm -hmm.
1: And that was the first time I had gone to jail and it, it it definitely shouldn't have been the first time. Uh, but up to that point, I felt almost invincible because I had, I had gotten one of my dad's business cards, and I got a lam. I took it to Office Max or wherever, and I got it laminated so it would never fall apart. And I kept that in my wallet. And anytime I would get pulled over, I would hand the police officer my driver's license and my dad's business card at the same time. Wow! Uh, And that worked every time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I I had felt invincible this whole time. You know, there were plenty of times that I had been. Drunk and been pulled over, and they they never really questioned me when I would give them that business card. They'd see my dad was a cop, and they'd ask me, and I would just be like, "Oh, I had, you know, I had a drink after work, and I, you know, if they would say like, you smell like booze' or whatever, mm. I I always had an excuse or a reason, and I, you know, I kept gum and mints and all kinds of stuff, and I, I always got out of it. So I felt this this sense that I was invincible and that I wasn't ever going to get in trouble. Sure. But when I parked my truck in someone's house, I realized that I wasn't going to talk my way out of it this time. I knew like, right. this is it. I'm, I'm definitely, <laughs> definitely going to go to jail.
0: There's evidence yeah. that it was more than just a drink after work.
1: Exactly. <laughs> way more than just way one more.
0: a house and a few cars.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I spent about a week or so in jail and uh, I got out on probation and one of the terms of my probation was that I was required to attend three 12 step meetings a week mm-hmm. for two years. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. I guess time. we're doing this. It was a long time. And then I can't even remember now a couple, couple hundred hours of community service and. Oh, I don't even, I don't even want to think about all the money. And I mean, it was. It was, it was a significant, uh, it was a significant amount. I think, I think I paid the state of Texas $10,000 and I, I don't remember all the specifics now. Cause that was 10, almost 10 years ago now. Mm. Um, but for a 20 year old kid, that was a lot of money and Heck a lot yeah. of community service, it's a lot of was,
0: pizza deliveries for you.
1: Exactly. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I get released from jail. My parents make the decision that I'm going to move back home with them, that I am not going to return to my sister's place Mm. that she already has enough to deal with and she doesn't need me there. So I move back into my parents' house and it's humiliating and embarrassing. And I just, I, I, I had no interest in being there. I, I felt like such a loser. And, you know, I was, I was 20 when I got, when I got the DWI, and then 20, by the time I got convicted of it, I was 21. So mm-hmm. I just had my 21st birthday and moved back home with mom and dad. And I just felt like such a failure. Like here I am at 21 years old, I had freedom and I was out on my own for two years. And then I, you know, I get arrested and then I have to move back in with them. Cause all the money that I have is going towards keeping me out of jail mm-hmm. and, you know, paying legal fees and attorney fees and all this stuff. And I'm just like, what? is going on with my life and so i started attending 12-step meetings and i am very resistant to the idea of recovery yeah even going into these 12-step meetings i'm trying to tell everybody you guys don't understand this was a one-time thing this was a mistake i shouldn't be here i'm not like you i'm not an addict i'm not an alcoholic like you know, this is just one of those wrong time, wrong place, wrong time kind of things. Like I can, if I can just figure out how to, how to drink, maybe just a few drinks less, if I can just right. not cross that line. And so that just was, the don't do section.
0: meth. Don't do the hard drugs. Don't do now the hard liquor.
1: Right. And just right.
0: maybe stick to a few beers and some weed every once in a while, you'll be okay. So go ahead and try some more controlled drinking. Got it. Familiar. Familiar.
1: Yeah, which, which is what I did. So for the two years that I was required to go to these meetings, I used in moderation, drank in moderation. And I, I had this idea that I could find the perfect formula that I could somehow, you know, figure out what that was, you know.
0: Drug and alcohol attorneys specialize in helping families and individuals in crisis due to substance abuse and mental health disorders. Many times an individual either refuses to go into treatment or won't stay in treatment long enough to experience the miracle of recovery. Sometimes the individuals may be homeless, living on the streets and cut off from those that love them. In these situations, the drug and alcohol team can locate the individual, obtain a court order and get them off the street and into life-saving treatment. When a family needs to regain control over medical and treatment decisions, and finances, the drug and alcohol team assists them to get emergency relief from the courts. In September of 2022, Drug and Alcohol Attorneys is opening another office in Boston so more families can be helped and more individuals.
1: If if It was, you know, so I was even, because I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a literal guy. So I was like making notes of like how many drinks I would have and like I was trying to find the formula of like what is the right amount for me where I can feel okay I can feel comfortable in my own skin I can you know push that anxiety and depression and all those things down mm. but not take it to that extreme where I start being an asshole you know like how <laughs> do I, like finding that balance and so I did that for about 2 years where I was using and drinking and going to 12 step meetings and mm. Eventually I started hearing some of those cliches when I would be drinking or I would be smoking. And I just, it was hard for me to enjoy it as much as I started hearing those cliches from the rooms and about two years into it, it was the day after Christmas, December 26th, 2014. I can still uh-huh. remember the scene like it was yesterday. And, uh, I had made a friend in the rooms. His name is Tim and Tim and I got really close in those two years that I was there to get my paper signed. And he pulled me aside after that meeting. Like, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's, it's everywhere at every meeting, but in my area, after the meetings, people stand outside and smoke cigarettes and talk in the parking lot or yeah. Well, it's 2022 now. Pretty much everybody vapes now, but you know, same place. Right. <laughs> Stand outside and Bigger and puffs vape. of smoke now. <laughs> everybody congregates in the parking lot after the meeting. Mm-hmm. And so we're doing that. He pulls me aside from the conversation I'm having. And he has just like this really serious look on his face. And I think, I think, I can't remember exactly what I had shared in that meeting, but I think I had alluded to the fact that i was still hung over from the night before or something along those lines letting him know that i was still using and he and i were close enough that he knew that i was not practicing this recovery program and he pulled me aside and he was like you can't continue doing what you're doing you can't have one foot in recovery and one foot in the bar you have to make a decision like you you can't keep doing this because you're going to be in this same place where you're miserable and you're you're just not satisfied and you just feel like you constantly have to continue to fill that void and you're just going to stay in that spot forever. It's like, how does he know I'm miserable? How does he know that I have this void? Like I, who, who told him that I felt miserable? Mm -hmm. And, and so he was like, you can't do this. And if you continue on this road, you will die. You will drink and drive again. You will have another accident. You like He's like, it'll just continue to get worse and progress if you continue to live your life the way you're living your life. And for whatever reason, I think it's because he and I had become friends and I had seen him on a regular basis and we hung out outside of meetings. When he told me that, it stuck, like it made an impact. And I was like, okay, I hear what you're saying and I understand, but I was like, this recovery thing isn't really working for me. And he was like, well, that's because you're not doing the program. You're not living a life of a person that's in recovery. You come to meetings for an hour and get your paper signed and then you go back and do whatever you want. He's like, you need to get a sponsor. You need to start doing step work. You need to make this recovery thing part of your life. And I was like, okay, I will give you, one year. You got one year. I'm not going to touch a drink. I'm not going to touch a drug. I will work a recovery program. I will get a sponsor. I will do step work. I will do whatever a person in recovery does. You got one year to convince me that this recovery thing is better than the life that I am living now. And he's huh. like, deal. <laughs> and here we are coming up in a couple weeks. I'll be celebrating eight years. Nice. Uh, so, um, I guess it's safe right. to say that this new way of life is a lot better than the way I was living before.
0: Heck yeah. That's amazing. Um, thank goodness for people that love us enough to tell us the truth. Yes. Yes. The hardest things in the world are, are not always the easiest to deliver, but it certainly can save somebody's life. So thank you, Tim. Thank <laughs> you. That was his name, right? Thank you, Tim. Yes. So what is, um, so now you're, you're part of recovery. What is, what does life start to look like? How did you do it? Obviously you're attending 12 step recovery meetings. You're, you're doing the work. How does life change for you?
1: Mm, That's a, that's a great question. And, and it's, it's a cliche. And I think it says it somewhere in the literature that if we wrote down a list of the things that we expected out of recovery, we'd be selling ourselves short. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's so true because in the beginning the things that I wanted out of recovery were so simple well before I was really in recovery what I wanted was to find that magic formula to find out how to use successfully which Mm. you're not going to find that at a 12-step meeting but (laughs) the things that I wanted were simple like I wanted my driver's license back I wanted a car again uh because at the time I was riding my bike everywhere that was pretty miserable riding my bike to meetings and riding my bike to work and all that Mm. and you know the things that I wanted were so simple and so so materialistic too. Like that was, that's one thing I can look back on now and see that I had a I had a very different outlook on life at the time and was so caught up in like possessions mm. and not realizing all the internal work that was also going to happen as I worked on my recovery and got vulnerable with another man and shared some of the things that I thought I would never share with anybody and all the he- and all the healing that I would do on those traumas and things that I experienced as a kid and I slowly began to become more of the person that I wanted to be by being vulnerable and I I've I've shared it before but I really began to understand what intimacy was I before I came into recovery I thought intimacy was something that a couple did i thought that that indicated mm. like being sexually involved with somebody i didn't understand what true intimacy was and the first real intimate relationship that i ever had was with my sponsor and it started out really slow with with me still being kind of reserved and not really sure how to do it and not wanting to tell him too much but i kind of started to test those waters and i would tell him a few things that I hadn't shared with other people and then I'd wait and I'd see if I would hear that from anybody else in the room, you know, hear anybody mm-hmm. talking about it to see if what I told him was going to stay with him or if that was going to, you know, float around in the gossip circles. Right. And I realized that I wasn't hearing it from anybody else. And I was like, okay, I can, I can trust this guy. Like, he's not telling my secrets. So oh, nice. mm mm-hmm. And so just a big piece. So yeah, important. So then, then it was like, I went up a level, like, okay, I can trust him with, with some of the small stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. I can tell him some more things. And it just kind of slowly built up where I felt like I could be open with him. I could tell him the things that were bothering me. I could tell him some of the things that made me feel insecure or that made me, you know, gave me anxiety or whatever. I felt like I could share those with him. And I began to understand what that intimate relationship was like. And at the same time, he's also guiding me through my step working process. And so I'm I'm working on that fourth step and writing these things down. And it was difficult in the beginning to be open, to be honest, to be vulnerable, but I felt like along the way as I would share things, my sponsor would either agree and say, yeah, me too, or he would have a similar experience and it started to make me feel like I wasn't alone. Like I wasn't this unique person that no one would understand because he had been through so many similar things that I had been through. Mm-hmm. Um And then I'm looking around and, and as we're, we've built this relationship and I'm looking at these people that are successful and they drive nice cars and they have good jobs. And I'm at the time I'm working at waffle house. working grill, working the grill at waffle house riding my bike i'm on probation for a dwi like i'm really really crushing it in life and um (laughs) i'm asking my sponsor i'm like man how again still kind of from a materialistic point of view but i was like how do i become like these people that i'm seeing at the meetings like there's there's guys that are showing up to the the 12-step meeting that i'm going to they're driving Mercedes Benz and they're wearing three piece suits. Like, how do I become that? Like, I don't want to, or I don't want to work at waffle house forever, man. Like this kind of sucks. <laughs> and so he starts teaching me. He's like, well, if you want to have things like they have, you have to do things like they do, you have to have skills, you have to learn how to be a good employee. And he started to show me beyond just 12 step recovery, how to live life as a successful person, how to. I don't mean successful as in monetarily because I'm definitely not rich, but he taught me about work ethic. He taught me about showing up early. He taught me about staying late, putting in the extra effort, like doing more than what is asked from you, like just things that in general help you progress in life and then. And then he's like, well, if you don't want to work in the job you're at, he's like, have you applied for any other jobs? Are you looking? Are you actively working on that? Have you updated your resume? Like, I don't even know that I've ever written a resume. So he's like showing me all these steps that I need to do to progress mm-hmm. in my life that I never even thought of. Sure. I just had that kind of mindset, still kind of a kid mindset of like, well, maybe one of these guys in the three-piece suit's is going to ask me if I want to like intern at his job. Maybe he's going to have pity on me riding my bike to the meeting. No, I need to fill out an application. I need to go out there and put in some effort if I want to go somewhere else besides where I am. So that's what I did. And I got yeah. a slightly better job. I got out of I got out of the fast food game. Then I moved up to a construction job. And then I learned skills and trades. And then I was able to take the skills that I learned there and go to another job. And, you know, to where I am today where I now have a career and... I feel like I can be a good employee. I've learned how to be responsible. People trust me. Uh, and I learned how to have relationships and be honest and vulnerable with people. And I think that too is why I was able to to be at the place where I'm at today. I met my wife. Um, let's see, we've been married for three years. Hmm. Let's see, Yeah, three, almost four years now. I had to do the math because if she listens to this and I get it wrong. Right. You're dead.
0: Yeah, you get that right. right.
1: coming up on four years of marriage and we dated for two years before we got married. So we've been together for almost six years now. Um, but I was able to have that relationship today because of the work that I did with my sponsor in the beginning, because I wasn't at a place. I thought I was at a place where I was ready for a romantic relationship, but I wasn't like, I still had work that I needed to do on myself. I wasn't ready to be vulnerable with other people, but because of the work that I've done with him, I was able to become the person that can be in a a successful relationship that can be a husband that can be a father. And I'm so grateful for that experience because without that, and that's one of the things that I think about if these events hadn't happened in my life and it's, it's crazy to say that I'm grateful for that wreck and that DWI and going to jail and all that Mm -hmm. terrible stuff. But if that hadn't happened, how long would I have continued on that path of using and hating myself and contemplating suicide and all that without ever finding recovery how long would i have stayed in that place of misery Mm. and would there have been another moment where i would have been forced into recovery or would i have just continued on that path until i died or would i have continued on a path of moderation and still hated myself and still not ever lived up to my full potential and just continued to exist and survive and never become anything like those are the things that I think about. So I'm grateful for the moment for those moments and those things that pushed me towards recovery. It wasn't fun. I didn't like it. It wasn't, there wasn't anything, you know, that felt good about those things, but looking back on it, like the path that it's put me on, I'm, I'm grateful for where it ended up taking me.
0: Yeah. You know, it, there's a, a wonderful thing about, failure and um really trying adverse times in our lives it it really can give you a nice barometer on how life could be if you stayed on that but if you don't have any of that failure and if you don't have and somebody keeps saving you there's um which which happens a lot right i've definitely learned this lesson myself i'm i'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict so that loosely translates to me being manipulative and a big fat liar, (laughs) you know, when I first came in. So it would be easy for me to get people to do things. And that was like my whole life, you know, like I would cheat off of somebody else's paper in elementary school. And, you know, I always was conniving. And when you learn, just like you said, you know, you had this wonderful person in your life that could help you with a design for living is, you know, miraculous because it really is, um, about being that person that shows up early, stays late, you know, uh, but most people don't get there unless there's that really big hiccup in the road or somebody doesn't just scoop them up and save them anymore. Cause I had been saved so many times. So now it's, you know, I watch my, um, I have an 18 year old stepson. So when he does something, I'm, the, I'm not the one that's saving because I knew that that was a, a real problem with my own um, family. You know, my parents were, you know, they always want better for your children. So just like your parents, right? They want to keep you safe from harm. They thought homeschooling you and, um, you know, your mom was a teacher and they're just going to keep all that stuff away from you. But what it really did, I went to private school. They were like, put her in private school, keep her away from her friends. We'll have her stop. That's what happens. Like nobody can protect you from life Mm -hmm. and you have to learn how to do that. And when you have to learn how to do it after some severe adversity, like you and I have both gone through, um, you either take it and listen to everything somebody tells you that seems to have that exact thing you were talking about. You know, I wanted that success. I saw, I remember the day I saw my sponsor, I was like, I want to be like her. (laughs) I want to be, I want to be somebody who's confident and walked in a room and, you know, dressed well and wasn't sleeping with everybody. I want to be like her, (laughs) you know, that's a miracle of recovery. And I, I think it's, Um, I'm getting, I'm getting to this question where I want to ask you what made you decide to recover out loud? Because, you know, when I look at people that are not in recovery, I I always think about God, how much they could benefit from having the resources that we have that really have given us this great design for living. Um, But what I know that you started your, your podcast in uh, February of 2020, again, which is recovery survey that I, I recommend everybody check out. What was the, what was the caveat to get you to start that?
1: Oh man. I feel like I get asked that every time I, I do an interview and I don't feel like I have the best answer for why I started a recovery podcast. I'll just um, take
0: the honest one then.
1: I feel like my higher power told me to start a recovery podcast. Like, there was something inside of know. me that told me that I needed to start a recovery podcast.
0: Hmm
1: and the Whatever. timing of it if I look at it is
0: amazing it's the amazing thing I didn't notice February 2020 I was like what
1: yeah so I I started figuring out and like getting stuff together January of 2020 uh-huh. I I did like some test recordings and kind of figured out what I was doing I I, I had no idea what, how to do a podcast. When I had this idea, I was just a podcast listener never thought I would be a podcast host. Right. And I, I bought a cheap mic on Amazon and Mm. I watched a bunch of YouTube tutorials and (laughs) just kind of hobbled together some terrible intros and outros and stuff. And, uh, I, had this whole plan in place where I had lined up a few people from my home group that I was going to record. And I bought this little mobile recorder that I was going to hook up my mic to. And I had everything planned out and then boom, COVID hits. I'm like, yeah. Uh, how am I <laughs> supposed to do this podcast? Like, right. Higher power. What do you want me to do? You told me to start this podcast and now everyone that I'm supposed to interview is not, wanting to meet in person and doesn't want to do this interview anymore. And how am I supposed to start this podcast that you told me to start? Um, And so I hopped on Facebook or was it Facebook or was it Twitter? I can't remember. I hopped on a social media platform Uh and I searched some different recovery keywords and I started finding people that were making posts about recovery. And so then I send them some messages. Hey, I'm starting a recovery podcast. Would you be interested in, uh doing a short interview with me and sure enough several oh. people message back and were like yeah I'd love to and then I watched some more YouTube videos like how do I actually record uh this interview and <laughs> what do I do with it once I record it yeah and all these uh all these videos kept suggesting this crazy new platform called Zoom that I had never heard of and I was like all right I'll download Zoom and I'll figure this out and uh so I started recording a couple interviews and learning as I went and if you go back and listen to the first few episodes, <laughs> they are very rough. I haven't listened to them recently.
0: <laughs> uh, but yes, God I have that some get... worthies myself.
1: I will say, because I will say the content is good. The speakers, the people that, that shared their stories are good. That's I'm not trying to take anything away from them. Right. I'm saying it's bad because of my editing and my inability to put together a good episode and not really knowing what the hell I was doing. So (laughs) the content is good. If you do go back and listen to those, but it might be a little rough. It's not as polished as it is today. And. It's because I've practiced at it. You know, that's one of the things that I've learned in recovery practice makes better practice, never makes perfect, but practice makes better. We get better at the things we practice. So if you do happen to go back and listen to those, the first probably at least 10 or 15 are pretty rough, but
0: um, it's all good. It's the all timing,
1: bad. but the time, like I look back on that now too. And I think that was my higher power the whole time wanting me to get everything set up. And all of a sudden, right. As I start releasing episodes, the pandemic hits and everybody's stuck at home and can't go to meetings. And I, there were several people from my home group that before we had gotten our zoom set up for our meeting were asking me like, Hey, how do I download your podcast? I need to hear some recovery stories. Like I I just need something like I need something outside of me and my book. I need something like, and it was like, all right, well here, let me send you a link. Let me do this. Let me do that. And then on the on the other hand, then when our meeting decided that they were going to do virtual, the first person they reached out to was me because they were like, "Hey, you've been doing stuff on Zoom for like a month now. Can you set up a Zoom account for, oh, our, that's cool. for our meeting? Can you you know can yeah. you teach people how to do it so we can chair and do all that stuff?" It was like, "Yeah, oh, I man, know how we needed Zoom somebody
0: now. like you. I was so tired of looking up people's nostrils from their cell phone." <laughs> 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 Wow. No. And how amazing, right. That like the timing was divinely planned for sure. You can certainly feel good about that now um, because uh, you have it all documented. You know, that's the other great thing about doing these shows is that there's, there's always going to be a story of hope coming from somewhere um, and, and documenting what it was like in the beginning of the pandemic until now is, is pretty great. I feel pretty great about that myself. Like, uh, if I ever want to remember what it was like, I don't have to just rely on my brain, which sometimes can fail me. I can, I can just go back and listen, yeah, yeah. you know, um, to the many episodes and and all the struggles and and now coming out on the other side. But as we come to the end of this show today, Brett, um, I want to first say thank you for sharing your experience, your strength, your hope, and, and thank you for recovering out loud. But, um, I, I started by, by saying how great it was that because of what we're doing as a, a vessel, right. I, I just wanted to have a continuing, um, conversation regarding this broken road to mental health, because I knew I was not alone. That was very obvious by the people that had read it, um, that uh, I just made it a tough decision to, you know, break the anonymity and to start recovering out loud. What has that been like for you? Uh,
1: man, that's, that's a great question. So I don't, I, I was talking to a friend yesterday who's also in recovery and he was asking me like, Hey, why has your podcast been so successful? Like, what's your formula? What are your goals? And, uh, cause he's, he started a podcast and recorded a few episodes and then kind of lost interest in it and was talking about starting back up or starting a new one and it's like i don't really have a plan my higher power told me to start a podcast and so i just continue to put an episode out every week because that's what i've been told to do um same for the same for the whole anonymity thing like i didn't plan on being out there on social media and telling everybody that I'm in recovery. And it's just kind of what happens. I feel like that was, it was just kind of the natural progression as I did the podcast and I felt more comfortable sharing my story and talking with people in recovery and seeing the need yeah. for people to recover out loud. Cause I, I didn't have that example before I was in recovery mm. and I wish I had found someone that was recovering out loud so that i knew that 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 there was a possibility of that for mm-hmm. me and so i think that it's just kind of been the natural progression is i'm okay with people knowing that i'm in recovery like my current employer knows that i'm in recovery because we were doing an interview and it's like the big boss like above my boss and he was like so what are some of your hobbies? And I was like, oh well, I do a podcast. And he's like, oh really? I'm a huge <laughs> podcast listener. What's your podcast? Yeah. And it's like, oh, ah.
0: now I got to tell
1: him that I'm in recovery because recovery right. is in the title of the podcast.
0: Right, right. Uh,
1: and he listens to my show regularly, which is pretty I love cool. that. Uh, a blessed man. <laughs> but you know, I'm I'm open with my recovery because I was open with my with my use. Like people knew that I was drinking and drugging. And I'm okay with people knowing that I'm in recovery now. And I can't tell you how many people I've had that have reached out people that I know and people complete strangers. They're like, Hey, I, I saw this clip, or I heard this on your podcast, or I saw you on so-and-so's podcast. I'm going through this. I'm struggling with this. Can you, you know, can you help me? Can you point me in the right direction? Can you help me find a meeting? Can you, you know, can you find a rehab in my area? What fill in the blank? And it's like, yeah, of course I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anything I could do to help, I will. And that's part of why I want to recover out loud. It's not to become the Joe Rogan of recovery podcast. It's not to get a yacht and a mansion. It's to help the next person that needs help to be that hand up that, you know, like I had when I was in recovery, to be somebody's Tim and, and have that conversation and that hopefully turns their life in a different direction. That's all I want to yeah. do is, is just help the next person.
0: That's awesome. Another shout out to Tim. So um, yeah, and I think that both of us understand that in in our uh, form of recovery, which is not, we don't care. Brett and I both feel the same way, How, whatever works for you, however you want to do this this thing, um, as long as you're getting some help, that's cool. But um, I think that we're taught in our specific program to be anonymous. And, and I understand exactly why they do that because there were there are a lot of people that come in and, and don't make it. And then it gives kind of, you know, the program, uh, a bad, uh, rap, but, um, it's harder for people to understand that, like, it's, it's never, a, it can, I can compare it to a networking group, right? Like some people go, Oh, that networking group doesn't work. Well, it's actually, you know, maybe it's you that's not working. You know, um, I am the problem, right? That's, uh, one of my favorite things to say. I am the problem and, um, and recovery rooms are, are just a vessel. So breaking the anonymity and and sharing, I never thought I would talk out loud about this until I was 25 years sober, but I certainly wish that I had the resources that are available to us today to maybe be that, that path or that road for somebody to jump on. But, uh, Brett, as we come to a close, uh, I would like to say, thank you, especially during this holiday season. I am certainly grateful for you for being on the show and for, doing the work to help somebody else out there today that that might be struggling. So thanks for everything, Brett.
1: Hey, thank you for having me on. And I I really appreciate the invitation to come on and hopefully something I shared, touched somebody and they, you know, they take that next step or they realize that they need help or whatever it may be. And if anybody wants to reach out or wants to have a conversation with me, I'm on pretty much any social media platform. You can find Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, recovery Survey is my username on all those platforms. So if anybody would like to reach out and talk to me or would like to be a guest on my show as well, send me a message on one of those. um, And I would love to talk with you.
0: Absolutely. And all of those links will be in the show notes so you can easily link up and and get on that show or or follow Brett. He's got a a really great show. I, I couldn't recommend it more. So thanks for being here today, Brett.
1: Thank you so much, Sharon.
0: Thank you. Remember, drug and alcohol attorneys specialize in helping families and individuals in crisis due to substance abuse and mental health disorders. Reach out today.